From the Gettysburg and 91.1 WZBT Gettysburg, I'm Ben Ponce, and this is On Target. I'm Mary Frazier. Today on Target, we'll discuss this week's meeting of the Gettysburg College faculty and of the Gettysburg College Student Senate. Then we'll talk to Vice President of College Life and Dean of Students, Julie Ramsey, about her office's work in the area of student success. Stay with us. I think that grunt was a good new, a good word, a good sound on which to start. Leave me alone. All right, let's get into it. So it has been, I would say it's been a busy week at Gettysburg College, although not really because there have been a lot of events, although there have been a few. Uh, but it seems like the end of semester paper writing craze Struck a little early this semester. I feel like it doesn't usually happen until after Thanksgiving, although maybe that's a product of Thanksgiving being later than normal. It's definitely a product of Thanksgiving being later than normal. Normally we have three weeks and our papers are due in that middle week, but instead this year we only have two weeks and professors, which like makes sense that professors don't want to grade all the papers like the last week of classes and then have finals to grade afterwards when they're due like days later, but it's frustrating. It's a lot of work. Yeah, uh, Mary has spent some significant time in the Gettysburgians' office writing papers over the last few days, I've observed. I have, in fact, been in the office writing Are they done yet? My political science paper is done. It was due on Thursday. Um, my history paper was supposed to be due yesterday, but my professor graciously moved the deadline to Monday. Thank goodness. Yeah, well, we are... Uh, here, here at On Target for the first time in a long time, actually getting a news segment recorded in the same week about which said news happened on Saturday. It's wild. It is indeed wild. Uh, and, you know, we, uh, wild indeed. Okay, uh, so in terms of what's been going on, there were a pair of Civil War-related events this week. The first was the annual Dedication Day extravaganza held over uh, at the battlefield. Michael Beschloss, a presidential historian um, who's written a number of books, um, uh, was the keynote speaker. President Bob also spoke. Uh, the Dedication Day ceremony occurs on November the 19th each year. Um, and last year, the speaker was none other than Janet Morgan Riggs, who would speak anyway as the Gettysburg College president. So I don't know if she was a, if they, if she was the selection because it was her last year as president of the college or someone else fell through and she was going to be there anyway. But in either case, uh, they tend to draw some fairly high profile speakers. Beschloss appears on uh, MSNBC and other, other uh, media outlets to discuss presidential history fairly regularly. I was not at the event myself, but heard it was fairly well received. Uh, also this week was the Fortinbaugh Lecture, another Civil War history event. Mary, how did it go? I heard you had dinner with the speaker. Um, I did not have dinner with the speaker. I had dinner with um, the reverend who gave the prayer. Um, was the speaker at the, at the dinner? You just weren't there with him? Or yeah, so there's a bunch of tables. Yes, ah. the speaker was there. Um, so I just did not seat at this. I was not sit, seated at the speaker's table. Ah. Yeah, um, but it went very well. Um, there were, I don't know if we have numbers yet of people who attended, or like the office probably does, but I haven't been there um, since. But uh, the theater was pretty packed, I think. Um, the Majestic is a fairly yes. large venue for something like this. They usually close off um, the balcony, so there was no one upstairs. But the theater was pretty full, um, so it seemed like he drew a big crowd. Um, he was a great speaker, um, had good like liners in the speech about um, Grant um, and how he's a controversial character. Um, not necessarily he himself, but throughout history and how historians portrayed him. Um, so yeah, really great night. Was the focus on his presidency or his time as a general <clears throat> during the Civil War? Um, I'd say kind of both. He talked about both. Um, yeah. 
Brooks Simpson from yes. uh, Arizona State University. Have they announced next year's speaker? I know last year at the event they announced that he was the speaker for this coming year, but I don't know. Uh, I don't recall them mentioning it. I'm sh- I'm almost positive we already have a speaker for next year because these things are lined up quite in advance. Um, and I don't think it's a secret of any kind. I'm just not sure who's next year's speaker is. Well, in any case, so that was a, a big a big event that occurred. So a pair of Civil War events. But other than that, I don't know that there was too much this week in the way of uh, large-scale lecturing going on. What did occur, uh, however, was a pair of government meetings, campus governance. Uh, the faculty met on Thursday for its penultimate meeting of the semester, um, and a pair of items were discussed. The first was something that we're going to chat about on this podcast next week, uh, something about which we will chat next week, um, which is the data science minor. So a group of faculty has um, has put together a proposal uh, that, that um, would establish a new minor in what they're calling data science, um, which uh, includes, according to the proposal, um, the understanding, processing, interpreting, visualizing, and communicating of data. Uh, and, And specifically, I think there would be a focus on quantitative data in this minor. Uh, There was not really any discussion about whether this ought to be a separate subfield um, it's an interdis. I mean, they talked about it as an interdisciplinary field. Uh, it seems to me that largely this is a minor in in kind of a technique or a method more so than a particular subject area. Insofar as as you know, there's environmental data, there's you know biology data, there's political science data, there's economics data, there's whatever. But it's also worth noting that this would not entirely be quantitative. They talked about a course in the works called Cultural Analytics, um, which uh, would be about assessing qualitative text and and whatnot. Um, And so we'll talk next week with Lisa Portmus uh, from the Philosophy Department and Rudd Platt from the Environmental Studies Department, who are the two faculty members that presented this motion um, the faculty could vote on it in two weeks at their final meeting the, that first week of December, in which case students could begin working on the minor as soon as the spring semester. Um, it, it's a six-course minor, three required core courses, three electives from a smattering of departments across campus. Um, and, and yeah, so it was an interesting proposal. Mary, I'm intrigued to hear your reaction as to the concept of another interdisciplinary minor. Uh, personally, I think I would probably had this existed, have been inclined to do it and get a better handle earlier on in, in college about working with, particularly with quantitative data. I just don't quite understand like what it would be for used for i don't know if i just don't understand the concept of it well i mean i think that they are proposing the goal is that uh, well a goal is that every business in the world every organization in the world these days is talking about making data-driven decisions um and and looking at so in in the context of the liberal arts and 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 you know, what we're, we're doing here, this course would, um, would allow, give students a better handle on kind of, you know, working with data of all types, manipulating, not in like a nefarious way, but, you know, statistics in particular, um, there would be required courses in data science programming, uh, an applied data science course, and then any statistics class would be a required component, such as Math 107 or a basic computer science course. Um, other colleges, they say, have a program like this, a minor like this, typically housed in a math department or a computer science department, so it's different uh, for Gettysburg that this would be a, a, an interdisciplinary 
focus. The other thing that's worth noting is that they were uh, upfront at the faculty meeting about not th- wanting this to be all about, um, you know, all for folks in the hard sciences or the social sciences, but wanting this to be accessible to humanities majors. There's a course that Scott Bottery has developed called Data Science and Society that would kind of be an introduction to a lot of these things from the lens of folks either with a limited statistics background or, uh, you know, and or, you know, geared towards arts and humanities majors. Um, And so it seems like an interesting concept. Uh, Chris Zappi, the provost, uh, said, quote, I have never really witnessed such a beautiful display of interdisciplinary work as this proposed minor. Um, and that's something he had told me privately several months ago about the committee's work um, in terms of the innovative thinking, he called it at the time. So I can't imagine it's not going to sail through the faculty, although last spring, you know, a, an interdisciplinary major what was at the time supposed to be explicitly interdisciplinary, i.e. business, did not sail. Uh, And then this fall, they came back with a proposal that was significantly less interdisciplinary that did sail, um, which was unique. Uh, And and, uh, I don't know, it, it struck me as a little odd. In other news, the faculty also discussed... Uh, for the third time, for the third time in the last year, the faculty grievance committee uh, had the floor to discuss proposed changes to the faculty handbook, namely removing uh, a passage that requires department chairs and program chairs to set the example of professional behavior uh, in their interactions with colleagues, and then. Under the under the reasoning that insofar as that is supposed to be something that faculty members should do, it should be all faculty and not just chairs. Uh, and so then they inserted a paragraph into the regular uh, section of expectations of faculty that uh, it was it was I mean, there's no real stick to enforce this necessarily because it would not be a part of tenure evaluations, so to say. But uh, saying the faculty should hold themselves to high standards of collegiality, honesty, and civility in their interactions with others. The first part about taking that passage away from the department chairs sailed um, by a vote of 107 to 11 to 4. People who abstain from things at these faculty meetings, it's always a little confusing to me. Like, what gives you grounds to abstain from that Abstention is not supposed to be a neutral vote. It's supposed to be you have a conflict of interest or something, but that's really a parliamentary side point. In any case, the second part of this, <laughs> you know, just just what you can come to expect on target, parliamentary procedure commentary. The second point uh, was <laughs> to add um, this passage about honesty and collegiality and civility, uh, and that was more controversial Um, Scott Hancock, the chair of the history department, stood up and said that while he understands where the motion is coming from and certainly himself supports the idea that faculty ought to behave in those ways, he is uneasy about the fact that terms like collegiality and civility um, could be culturally loaded, Uh, subjective and that in particular certain groups, and he mentioned black women as an example, are often perceived as not being collegial and civil by white Americans, uh, quote, because of the way that they communicate or a host of other things, end quote, he said. Uh, And he said that he would have more faith in the faculty's ability to assess, and it was really the assessment piece of this that was the crux of his argument, to assess the extent to which people are collegial or civil if more faculty members, he mentioned the number 90%, and I don't know what the number is. I'm not sure that a number really could be calculated uh, for public consumption because when the Office of Diversity and Inclusion administers this, I believe that it is, uh, you know, it would be protected under various, you know, privacy 
issues, but there's a there's an intercultural development inventory, an intercultural competence assessment um, that the Gettysburg staff did last year, um, and that many organizations on campus have taken it upon themselves to do as as an and kind of administrative departments, but academic the academic division um, has not really embrace this in any systemic systematic way either. Um, and so in any case, he said if 90% of faculty had done that, or if it wasn't pulling teeth to get members of the faculty to become trained as inclusion partners, uh, inclusion partners are required to be part of every search, both for faculty staff, as well as for staff and administration, but in the academic division, every uh, faculty search is required to have an inclusion partner who um, is charged to uh, make sure that the job ad is inclusive and that there's, uh, you know, try to limit the extent to which bias uh, is in involved in evaluating candidates. Uh, a lot of times this comes down to having a rubric that has clear expectations rather than just kind of culturally loaded feelings uh, about particular candidates. And in any case, Hancock said that if more faculty had completed training to be inclusion partners, uh, had completed this intercultural competence assessment, that he would be more confident that the faculty could assess collegiality and civility fairly and accurately, uh, but in the meantime, he couldn't support it. That argument seemed to be fairly persuasive uh, as the vote was much narrower uh, for this one. It did end up passing 75-55 to 9. As a quick aside... The faculty votes via Kahoot, um, and the faculty was having a great deal of trouble on Thursday afternoon with the Kahoot. People were getting locked out. Uh, you know, the internet was was in and out. President Giuliano was dispensing tech advice such as reboot your phone. Uh, Vice President of Information Technology Rod Tostin was running around the room troubleshooting people's phone issues. It was a real spectacle. Uh, and you would just like to think that Kahoot would not be the best technology solution for the Gettysburg College faculty. Why can't they literally do, like, heads down, hands up? Well, you know, <laughs> I suppose that would be an option. They used to vote, apparently by voice votes um, or by paper ballot. Uh, and, you know, I think the, the, the goal of Kahoot is that it's completely anonymous. Now, you could argue about whether... I, I frankly think that faculty being on the record about how they're voting on things, you know, is, is a... I think people being on the record about how they vote in, in these sorts of settings is just a good governance practice, uh, you know, but that was not the decision the faculty took. But in any case, even if they wanted anonymous voting, it seems like there are a million and one better ways to do this. They had to re-vote a second time on this motion, uh, the second motion, but... You, you know, can make so many mistakes with Kahoot. Like, you could click the wrong thing, especially if the faculty's not familiar with it. That's yeah. just, like, not a move. <laughs> yeah, well, they had Kahoot training. They do a Kahoot training at the beginning of each semester. Excuse me? Like a review on how to use Kahoot. It's like 10 minutes, but... Oh, my God. You know, I said I was sitting next to a member of the faculty who I will say is not part of the geriatric cohort, but is also not part of the millennial cohort. Uh, and I said that every time I witness a faculty meeting, just not really even in terms of the discussion, just in terms of like how many PhDs does it take to blank? You know, I, I just scratched my head and he said that it, it gets, it gets worse each year. Uh, and you know, Kahoot. It's a hoot watching the faculty try to do this. But to the broader point, um, this is something that also comes up in course evaluation season, which we're heading into. There's a good deal of research out there to suggest that students evaluate uh, women and people of color, faculty members, uh, more poorly than male, white male faculty members. There's a lot of bias that seeps into course evaluations. 
and and there's some research and and some some who have suggested based on that research that they are not the best way to assess faculty teaching, but uh, in any case. A majority of faculty did not find that argument sufficiently persuasive to vote no, but it did generate some conversation. Other news, on a lighter note, perhaps, this week was Servo Thanksgiving. Woo! Mary. How was your Servo Thanksgiving experience? My Servo Thanksgiving experience was actually probably the best it has been in my three years here at Gettysburg. Oh. Oh, um, because I, like so many others, thought that the best way to go about Servo Thanksgiving was to get in line during the day and wait for hours and hours in the cold and be miserable and do homework and waste a bunch of time because, as we were saying, this is, like, the final homestretch. People have a lot of papers due and whatnot. Um, and I did not do that this year. I decided I was just going to go for dinner at six with a few friends and see what happened. Um, and there was only four of us. We waited in line for like maybe 15, 20 minutes, nothing crazy long. Um, and there was small groups of people that also wanted to eat dinner. We ended up formulating a group of 12 and went in. So I sat at a table with about two or three different other groups of people. Um, and has some servo Thanksgiving. And, like, who doesn't love servo stuffing? You literally can't go wrong with servo stuffing. Well, yeah, the idea that people need to camp out there like it's a Duke basketball game or something, you know, the, <laughs> what are, what are the Krzyzewskiville before the Duke-UNC <laughs> game where, like, if you, ever want, uh, if you ever want to do something that will make you think that Gettysburg is a less ridiculous place as compared to other institutions of higher learning, just go online and read the rules about the tents, the tent city that is set up outside of um, the Cameron Indoor Stadium, the Duke Basketball Stadium, the rules for how many people must be in the tent at all times and, you know, how many people must sleep in the tent each night for the whole group to be considered present oh my with God. respect to getting tickets for the student section. It, it's, it's unbelievable. That's ridiculous. And the idea that people need to take Servo Thanksgiving that seriously, I mean, it's hilarious. I, so I... Also had my best Servo Thanksgiving experience ever. It was also the first. Um, but at 6.30, when I came after an event that ended at 6, there was, in fact, no line. Just walked right in. Yeah. And yet people in the group that I was part of decided that they wanted to spend all afternoon sitting out on the steps of Plank Gym waiting. Um, I told them that based on my experience the last four years watching the line, even if not participating in it, that would be not necessary and yet they did it anyway, um, but alas. But Servo Thanksgiving was okay. I'm not really sorry I didn't go before, but it was a good thing to do. No, I love Servo Thanksgiving. It's so good. I got to carve the turkey. I was the head of the table. I was asked to carve the turkey and declined, and Bob, President Bob, uh, said, delegation is an important leadership quality. And You love that. And I delegated <laughs> To one delegated. of my successors as drum major of the Bullets Marching Band. Exciting. All three of the incoming drum majors of the Bullets Marching Band were at my table. Aw, very cute. Look at you go. Big brother over here. I don't know if I'd go that far. But in any case, Servo Thanksgiving was all right. And then uh, we were like the last people to leave at like 7 o'clock. And they were clearly eager for us to go because I guess the the servers eat after. Yeah, the servers don't get to eat until after everyone leaves, which I think is crazy. Well, I don't, well so here's my thing. 7 o'clock okay. is a normal person time at which to eat dinner. Like civilized people. Well, here I go with, you know, culturally subjective approaches to civilized. Yeah, but, I was going to say, that's <laughs> a loaded word, Ben. You got to watch how you use civilized. Well, I, in my existence, seldom eat dinner before 7, 8, 9, or usually not much past 9. So the idea that waiting until 7 o'clock is... Yeah, but they had to serve that food the whole time. Well, I'm not saying that they didn't, you know, you know, that serving... It, it's probably different when you're serving a whole bunch of food and then you either are desperate to eat it or perhaps n don't want any part of it. Um, but you know, it was a nice event. 
both the president and his wife were near the table at which they, they were done serving by the time we got there. They were spectators uh, and, and perhaps hecklers a little bit. <laughs> um, uh, they, they did indeed do some well-placed heckling of the turkey carving that was going on uh, in my neck of the woods. But uh, yeah, and it was a nice event. And I suppose that, you know, communications and marketing was of course there. I saw photo taking. I saw, I believe I saw some video equipment. I Who mean, knows? you know, if there's anything on campus that's marketable, you can bet the marketing team will be there, which I mean, is literally their job. So I can't complain too much, but mm-hmm. it's just, you know, one of those things that, that, uh, you can always expect them to show up. Always expect them to show up. All right, well, that is going to wrap up our news segment. We'll be back in a minute with the Bullet Report. Should note that the soccer teams of both flavors, uh, the men's and the women's teams, lost in the NCAA tournaments last weekend, so both of their seasons respectively came to an end, but congratulations to both teams on their first NCAA tournament appearances in some time. Uh, I believe the women was something since like 2014, 17, been a couple years. The men, I believe, was all the way back to something like 2003. Um, so congratulations to both teams. We'll be right back with the Bullet Report, followed by a conversation with the Dean of Students, Julie Ramsey, about student success at Gettysburg College. Stay with us. And now it's time for the Bullet Report. Some seasons ended and others began in the last week of Gettysburg College sports action. On November the 16th, the men's soccer team defeated Oglethorpe 5-0. Women's soccer team lost to Williams 2-0. The men's basketball team won 78-58 against Southern University of New York. The women's basketball team defeated Bridgewater 86-82. The men's wrestling team lost to Scranton 30-15. The men's wrestling team lost to Rowan College of Gloucester County 39-9. The men's soccer team then lost to Washington and Lee 3-2, ending its season. The men's wrestling team defeated Penn State Montalto 31-18. The women's basketball team defeated Washington and Lee. 72-50. The men's basketball team defeated Ben State Burks 98-54. The women's basketball team defeated McDaniel 66-57. The women's swing team defeated Messiah 138-47. The men won 134-52 at the same event. The men's wrestling team lost to Central College of Iowa 39-9 and defeated Lackawanna 29-11. Thus endeth the Bullet Report. We'll be right back with Julie Ramsey. And we are pleased to be joined today by the Vice President of College Life and Dean of Students, Julie Ramsey. Dean Ramsey, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure, Ben. Uh, Why don't we start here? Um, Last week on this podcast, we discussed um, President Giuliano's new priorities uh, that he rolled out at the faculty meeting. Uh, I guess that was now two weeks ago. And among them, um, I believe priority six although I don't know that they were in any particular order, uh, was improving the college's retention rate and six-year graduation rate. Um, the, the retention rate between one's first and second year, I believe he said, averages about 91%, and the six-year graduation rate averages about 84%. Um, and, and while those numbers, while there are certainly other institutions that would be happy with such numbers, um, in his view and, and borne out by uh, just some quick Googling. Uh, some of our, maybe not our peer institutions, but certainly other leading liberal arts colleges um, are doing a little bit better in those categories. And so he announced that you're, you've been charged uh, to kind of head up some efforts in that area. Um, I know, and maybe we'll start here. I know two years ago, um, the there was a task force um, that was composed of members of your division in college mm-hmm. life, as well as the academic division, um, and the enrollment, or excuse me, and the 
Educational Services Division, EES. Um, and that task force produced a report that had some recommendations. And so maybe you could start here. Over the past two years, what has the college done in response to those recommendations? Have any of them been acted upon or implemented? And kind of what has been the recent history of student success efforts and retention efforts at the college? I think there's been uh, one of the things that's been happening, Ben, is that there's been a, a, a much more specific focus on collecting the data around retention and uh, why, particularly voluntary withdrawal. So so when you look at who leaves Gettysburg, there are some that are involuntarily withdrawn. Right. There are some who take, that's a very, very small number, by the way. Um, there are people who take a leave of absence and who, some of whom end up returning. And then there's what we call voluntary withdrawal. Mm -hmm. And that's the area where we're really focused, and we've been much more deliberate about trying to collect data on those students and to understand why they're leaving. Mm -hmm. That's been one of the uh, outcomes, I think, of the student success group. Um, the student success group also recommended that we uh, purchase a technology platform or software uh, program Mm -hmm. that has been developed by an organization in Washington, D.C., and uh, that has been through a couple different iterations. Right. And so it's, it's, it's an expense for the college, and we've been um, trying to understand whether that um, investment would be worth the, uh, the cost, and that review... Some of it took place under Janet. I think she was just because she was leaving. It was like, okay, let's wait for the next president and see mm -hmm. where we are then. So we've kind of just recently actually uh, had a meeting with those folks from Washington with a few of the senior people here. So that's still under consideration. Mm -hmm. uh, the student success group wanted to continue to meet, which they have been doing. And I think they've been the way I see it, Ben, is that as information comes out of the um, of the task force, if it's actionable, mm -hmm. we've tried to move forward on it. I'll give you an example. So one of the things the data shows is that um, the students who took a first-year seminar, the students who signed up for a first-year seminar, mm -hmm. have a better retention than those who did not. Right. Now, that's not the only reason or perhaps even the primary reason why first-year seminars were voted in for everyone. Right. But it's definitely, that was definitely part of the conversation. Right. And that will be something that, as you know, is going forward with the start of next year. Right. So the faculty approved that last yep. year to start for the class of 2024, right. I guess right. that would right. be. Right, incoming class. Right. So I'm interested in this, in the data that, that's been collected. What are some of the reasons that people leave voluntarily? I'm assuming transferring to another school is one of them, but that might not necessarily be the underlying reason why they're leaving. Correct. So the vast majority of students who leave do transfer to another institution. It's not as though they're dropping out of college altogether. Right. Um, and the vast majority of those will end up transferring uh, some will go to community colleges, some will go to another liberal arts college, but the majority will end up going to a public, a larger public institution. Hmm. Um, and again, why is that? Maybe it's closer to home, maybe it's a little less expensive. Maybe, so that's an, an area where we'd like to understand better what's going on there. Mm -hmm. um, but so part of it, Ben, is we have to understand or we're trying to understand the demographics of who's leaving. Are there any trends? Are there any patterns? Um, so, for example, men leave more than women. Mm -hmm. um, it's often been thought here that students who are doing better academically leave at a higher rate than those who are performing less well. But in fact, the, tr the data suggests, doesn't suggest, the data shows <laughs> the opposite, yeah. that students who are underperforming or who, who have lower GPAs tend to leave at a higher rate than those who are doing very well academically. Is there any um, concern or, or discussion about whether financial reasons, and you alluded to this briefly, that some students are transferring to uh, 
state schools, which, you know, if it's in their home state, are probably, at least in terms of sticker price, going to be lower than the cost of Gettysburg. Is there any concern that, you know, as tuition has, you know, next year is likely to cross the $70,000 threshold, that that, you know, not being able to afford Gettysburg anymore, a, a change in financial circumstance that isn't accounted for by a commensurate change in financial aid is pushing students away? Um Again, I think the data would show that makes sense. So it's a really it's a it's a it's a legitimate question. I think the data shows that first of all, the data shows there's not one reason why people leave. Mm-hmm. So usually, if people will give you an answer, they will say um, they will often refer to something in the social arena. They'll often refer to something in the academic arena. And then finances will often be mentioned as a kind of third or fourth mm-hmm. uh, reason, kind of pilot. There's a pile-on effect. So in the social area, people talk about the dominance of Greek life, the um, the concern, or let's say the absence of uh, maybe other activities, uh, the inability to find like-minded people. Those are some of the social reasons mm-hmm. that are given. On the academic side, they will sometimes talk about they've they've actually changed their mind about their major, mm-hmm. or let's say they've they came in not knowing what they wanted to do, and now they're interested in something that Gettysburg doesn't offer. Right. You see things like, I mean, I've seen on on the surveys things like culinary arts or graphic arts or uh, accounting engineering. Or, Engineering has not, I haven't seen that, but it's, um, you know, could be there. Um, So they'll talk about wanting to do something else. Um, Sometimes they talk about kind of the academic intellectual environment. Mm -hmm. And that's often checked. That box can be checked as a reason for leaving. One thing that was interesting to me when I, um, two years ago, when the report came out and I I spoke with Rob Boyer and Brendan Cushing-Daniels, who co-chaired that task force, the retention rate... um, for international students and for domestic students of color tends to be higher uh, across most of the years in this in these data than for domestic white students. And I'm wondering um, whether you or anyone else has any thoughts on why that might be. Because historically, or, you know, intuitively, and Brendan Cushing Daniels was quoted in this article saying that he thinks the faculty was shocked and didn't believe the data that was right in front of them about this, right. you know, on that issue. Well, sometimes, you know, when you go to interpret the data, you're really kind of stretching. You're putting your own interpretation mm-hmm. on it. I would suggest a couple things. And I could be you know, could be completely wrong, but I would suggest a couple things. I think that um, the data shows that anyone who receives financial aid is more likely to stay than a full-pay student who has lots of other options. Mm-hmm. So that could be part of, of this uh, puzzle. Right. Another piece might be that I think international students have already made a significant adjustment. Right. So the idea of perhaps making another significant adjustment by transferring to another institution is uh, daunting. Right. So I, I think, though, that we're starting to see their, those rates uh, of attrition come into a little bit more alignment with the overall general rate now. Mm-hmm. So that's the other thing that makes this very challenging is that, um, A, there's no single bullet. There's no silver bullet that says, you know, just fix this and then we'll, our retention will dramatically improve. That's challenging. The mm-hmm. second thing that's challenging is the cohorts change. So we may track, and I've seen this in the data, you may look at the, you know, class of, that came in in 14, graduated in 18, and they have one pattern. Then you look at the next year, the year after that, and the pattern shifts a little bit. Mm -hmm. So, for example, I said more men end up leaving than women. Well, now the women are starting to catch up a little bit. So what not is, really a subject you're looking for gender <laughs> equity, in, no. I suppose. <laughs> exactly. But what you know, how can we that's why interpreting the data and knowing what to do and mm-hmm. how to respond and it, it can be can be very challenging. Where does this data come from? Do we interview students on their way out? And how do you convince a student who's leaving to sit down to be, you know, interviewed? Do you know, do you get a tuition refund or something? No, <laughs> unfortunately, that's not how it works. We we um 
the Office of Institutional Analysis or Institutional Research reaches out to the students once they've uh, informed us that they have transferred or intend to transfer. Uh -huh. And so, not surprisingly, the response rate is fairly low. And that's another issue with trying to interpret the data. Do we have really, I mean, I think statistically we have enough data, but it's... A self-selecting group. It is, and it's a, it's a small group. So we're trying to um, uh, really generalize and and uh, from from the data that they provide. Mm -hmm. The other thing, though, Ben, is that I think there are um, other opportunities, perhaps, to get better, well, not better data, additional data, I would say. Right. So, for example, I've talked to some faculty who said, um, I know why student, stu some of my students transfer, because they've talked to me about it. Well, I don't think we reach out to faculty currently yeah. to ask them for that information. I have students who talk to me about leaving, and I don't, I've not traditionally reported that data anywhere, even though I may have a pretty good understanding of why they did. So I think pulling in some of that additional uh, data could be part of what we decide to do in the future. One, um, one area or one recommendation, um, it wasn't really a recommendation, a common thread through um, the, the report that the Student Success Task Force uh, released and, and subsequent conversations was about the, the role of advising in, in all of this, um, and in particular faculty advisors. And I think that that has something to do with what this technology tool might be able to, to do. So I don't know, maybe there are two questions there. One is what exactly would a, adopting a technology platform enable the college to do if that's in the realm of advising? And then how does you know, how do you go about, I mean, as, as the vice president of college life who, who's overseeing this, faculty advising isn't really something that you can issue a right. directive to change tomorrow. Right. Um, well, I think there are a couple things, Ben. One is that I think just bringing the data to the fore and to the attention of the faculty around advising is uh, an important process. And I think that's been, we've started doing that. I think we need to continue doing that. Mm -hmm. And I think also bringing some uh, solutions as well. Um, so the, for example, there's, a, there's been a, a group looking at the Office of Academic Advising mm -hmm. this year because we, we have some, some significant personnel changes there. Gail Ann Rickert left the office and... Now this year, Anne Lane is retiring from mm -hmm. the leadership, and of that she's office. been serving as the acting she director since Gail Ann Rickert retired at yeah. the end of was that the end of last year, last I think. academic year. Yeah. So there's an opportunity. Anytime you have a leadership transition, it sort of begs the question about what's the office doing, what's the um, what's the oversight, what's what's considered in the academic advising area, mm -hmm. what's outside the area, and so there's been. A lot of focus on on that this year. In fact, there's some uh, re recommendations coming forward just now mm -hmm. um, to the provost about options for that that office. Well, one option recommended or floated here at least was recasting it as an office of student success. Yes, is that yeah. something still being considered? Yeah, I think so. And that's that's that idea of what's in that office then, mm -hmm. and what's you know how do we perhaps make the office more broad in its conception of, of what's what that office does. Um, the technology piece that we were referring to earlier uh, really tries to, to bring together, uh, to be a, a, a conduit for information to flow back and forth between the advisor and the student. Mm -hmm. And to really facilitate that information, I should say maybe the advisor, their faculty, and the student to facilitate transfer of information, to kind of nudge students when they need to be, um, you know, signing up for class or coming in to see their advisor, um, to if they see, if let's say the faculty member um, documents that the student did poorly on a writing assignment, then the technology has a way of, if you put that into the system, the, the, uh, Technology will nudge the student, kind of ping the student to say, have you thought about going to the writing center? Here's where it is. Here's the times that it's open. Mm -hmm. Why don't, you know, I could make an appointment for you. So uh, it's sort of the Amazon concept, I think, of trying to just really make 
the, a much more seamless experience for students as they try to access the resources of the college mm -hmm. to support their academic success. And so what, I mean, what else could be considered under the rubric of a broader office of student success? I mean, is that something where, you know, academic advising and the writing center and the peer learning program and all yeah. of those things are kind of under a single umbrella that has a kind of clear mandate and maybe a single location on campus? Yes, that's a great example. Um, there's you. Some places have uh, brought together academic advising and career engagement, for example, mm -hmm. um, so that students who are thinking about their academic home, their academic future, can also be thinking about how that major will translate into various career options or making sure that if they have a specific career option in mind, they may, they're taking the right courses that will help them achieve that goal. Is that something we're considering? I, I've certainly, it's in one of the recommendations. It's certainly, you know, I'm certainly open to it. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know whether it will end up being something we decide to do or not. But that's a good example of different office configurations that right. can um can be imagined as we go through right. this process. I mean, obviously this is an ongoing process, but do you have a timeline of, of kind of when you're looking to make some recommendations about things like office structures? And I mean, because Ann Lane, for example, right. that's kind of an, uh, you, there's a bound time that at the end of this academic year, she's retiring. And right. so, you know, either that office is going to need an acting, acting director yeah. or a new director, and theoretically you have to search for that person. So I'm just kind of, yeah. it seems like there are some upcoming deadlines. Yeah. Well, that's a decision I think that will be made by the provost. And he certainly asked for my input and the input of others, but it's really his decision. And I think he would like to make that decision fairly promptly. Mm -hmm. um, I would think by the end of January, if, if at all possible. Right. And what kind of, I mean, and, and President Uliano said at that meeting that this has you know, this initiative around retention has, has kind of been put in your court. What specifically does that entail for you? That is a great question, Ben. <laughs> I think more work basically is what it entails. Um, no, I think it's a, it's a, uh, it's a focus really. Mm -hmm. So it's been uh, interesting because I think it will help to focus some of the things we're doing and perhaps get us to ask a different set of questions as we go through our uh, the work that we're already doing. Mm -hmm. And I'll give you some examples. So as we think about orientation, um, for example, um, maybe we want to focus more on um, just making sure that first-year students are really connecting with other students of like mind. Mm -hmm. How can we do that? That's not a question we've necessarily been asking, but I would be asking it now. Mm -hmm. How can we make sure that first-year or in orientation or in a CYC program, we're really emphasizing the academic uh, skills that students need around time management, uh, stress management, test-taking, uh, note-taking, study skills, et cetera. So um, I think we're going to be looking at some of the issues that we see popping up on the attrition uh, reasons people are giving and diff struggles that students are having and then try to address those. Mm -hmm. Now, the nice thing about that is everybody benefits, right? So not just the students who might end up leaving, but probably every student who's Right. Even the students, obviously the students who remain enrolled here. So I think we're going to be looking at orientation. We're going to be looking at the CYC program. We're going to be looking at uh, some of the, the ways that we uh, put together our social offerings. And I don't have all the answers right now, but it's a, it's a different lens, I think, that's mm -hmm. That's what makes it really helpful is that it's very clear what the focus is. And now we can use that lens to review all the things that we're doing. Mm -hmm. And is it your sense that at this point, you know, a lot of the low hanging fruit has been addressed. And so now it's kind of these bigger structural questions that you're considering, or are, are there still kind of lower hanging fruit, so to say, that, that you might be addressing in, in the shorter term? Um. 
I don't see a lot of low-hanging fruit, Ben, at present. Um, I think it is much more complex, basically, because you're really trying to get people to change the way they do things. And mm-hmm. there's a reason for why we do things, right? We think we're doing pretty well already, and the data would suggest that we are. So I think knowing what to do, knowing how to interpret the data, I think there's going to be some experimentation, quite mm-hmm. frankly. I don't think it's as though we're going to say, okay, we looked at the data, we've done some focus groups, we absolutely 100% know what we're, what the next right step is. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's probably unlikely. I think it's much more likely that we're going to say, okay, the data suggests that we need to pay more attention to this issue with these at this point in time. Let's try some things. Let's see how they work. Let's learn from that. Let's go back and try mm-hmm. something else, and at least on the college life side. Right. I think that's likely to be the case. And is that Student Success Task Force continuing to, to meet and conduct work, or is that kind of being phased out in favor of you taking over? I think we're going to uh, kind of put a period at the end of this semester for that group and think about, well, I'm sure we will reconstitute a group going forward. Some of the members may carry over, but I want to uh, I want to make sure that we're uh, giving some of the people on that group a break because I think they've put in really good service, and I want to bring a couple new people onto mm-hmm. the group. And then maybe as a last question, what are kind of, I mean, in this particular case, it's one of those things where you're doing work in an awful lot of areas, and, and there are kind of define metrics of, of, you know, success in terms of increasing the mm-hmm. retention rate uh, and, and increasing the graduation rate. Have you been given any kind of number to shoot for or goal, or do you have one in mind as far as what, you know, how we'll know this has been successful or not? I think that's part of what the group will need to determine, you know, what's realistic, what's ambitious, but, but doable. The it's it, the the first the next two years are kind of already baked in, right? Because you've already got sophomores and juniors who are who are going through the program as it is, and they're probably it'd be surprising if the rate changed all that much, frankly, right? Right. So for the you're probably not going to see much significant change for the next two years. But what we want to do is that as first year students enter, particularly uh, next fall, that we've that we're either testing some things or have already made some Mm -hmm. changes, put some things in place for for that group. So, no, we don't have a specific uh, goal in mind at present, but I think that's part of what the group will need to do. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, Dean Ramsey, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Ben. That's on target for this week. We'd like to thank Julie Ramsey for being our featured guest today. We'd also like to thank the staff of the Gettysburgian and the executive board of WZBT for their ongoing support for this project. Be sure to subscribe to On Target on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. On Target is a joint production of the Gettysburgian and WZBT. Our theme music was composed by Diego Rocha, a 2019 graduate at Sunderman Conservatory of Music, currently getting a master's degree in music composition. Join us next week. We'll be talking about the data science minor with professors... Rudd Platt and Lisa Portmas. Have a great week and happy Thanksgiving.